0: Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work, and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. Dr. Ravi Chopra is the founder-director of the People Science Institute in Dehradun, Uttarakhand. Through his career, he has helped establish several pioneering organizations in the social and development sectors, from livelihoods-based organizations to organizations working on disability rights, human rights, water resources management, and many more. Dr Ravi Chopra was born in 1947, the year India gained her independence, and grew up in Bombay. He earned a B.Tech in Metallurgical Engineering and Materials Science from IIT Bombay in 1968 and went on to complete his doctorate in Metallurgical and Materials Engineering at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Dr. Chopra was always interested in the interactions between technology, society and the environment, and he returned to India with a desire to contribute to India in some way. And he has spent his entire career of over 50 years committed to improving the lives of his fellow Indians. He has been associated with many different organizations and projects, from FRIA to helping produce the First Citizens' Report on the State of India's Environment in 1982, to working with Pani Panchayats, organizations like Pradhan, and finally establishing the People Science Institute in Dehradun in 1988. PSI, as it is commonly known, has pioneered work in water resources management, environmental quality monitoring, disaster mitigation, and the conservation of rivers, particularly in the Himalayan region. Dr. Chopra has served on various committees for the Indian government, including committees of the Ministries of Rural Development and Water Resources and the Planning Commission. He has also been a member of the National Ganga River Basin Authority, chaired by the Prime Minister of India. Dr. Ravi Chopra lives in Dehradun with his family. His wife, Jo Chopra McGowan, is the founder of the Latika Roy Foundation. Dr. Ravi Chopra is in conversation with Suchitra Srinoy a non-fiction writer who has worked extensively in the social sector. She is also a teacher in the Buddhist tradition. This conversation was recorded at the People Science Institute in Dehradun. Well, I'm thrilled to be here
1: with Dr. Ravi Chopra, who is for many, many people a huge inspiration. All of us in the social sector have kind of grown up hearing all these names and Dr. Ravi Chopra is certainly one of them. He's also a dear friend and so it's been wonderful to listen to the stories and to be given this opportunity to be here for this conversation. So Ravi, to start off with an interesting question, how many newspapers do you read every day and in how many languages?
2: Thank you, Suchitra. Currently, I read seven newspapers every day i scan them first thing in the morning before breakfast and uh, they are in two languages hindi and english local and national and then on the net i read uh, the new york times
1: and used to have a higher number was it it was 13 or something right
2: well it (laughs) fell from 13 to 9 and now seven. seven
1: Even in the newspaper reading, from what I remember, your, the, you would actually subscribe across the spectrum, right, in terms of right-wing, right yes. left-wing, yes. just to get a sense of the, that political environment.
2: Yes, not only political, but also the kind of news. For example, I subscribe to a local newspaper, which focuses almost exclusively on Dehradun city and Uttarakhand. Then… I used to get Tribune until last year, which was focused on Himachal Pradesh. Times of India and Economic Times are the establishment newspapers, uh, as is Amar Ujala. Hindustan, Indian Express, and the Hindu are slightly to the left of center and not always reporting the establishment viewpoint.
1: If we move now, continuing with the political and economic, but to move to the fifties and the sixties, can you share with us the kind of critical influences of your younger days? What was the political and economic climate like in those decades?
2: Uh, First of all, I often like to tell people that I am one of India's midnight children, born in 1947 growing up in the 1950s, when there was a tremendous air of excitement. There was a mood of nation-building. We've just become free, and uh, we can make this country the way we want it to be. So the atmosphere was full of hope. My exposure to the political world Began with uh, our own family. My mother's uncle uh, was uh, a staunch congressman who had been uh, picked as a Jeevandani for the freedom struggle by Lajpatrai. And uh, he's a very simple person uh, who had, I think, three or four pairs of kurta pajamas. When he traveled, he had a mini hold all, you know, to keep all his stuff. He carried it himself, had all privileges of a parliament member, but uh, wouldn't hop onto the local bus to go to the train station. And an extremely simple person, but tremendous uh, amount of respect for him in the family. So that was my first role model, that this man who's so simple, he's getting so much respect. And uh, then Nehru was, of course, the commanding leader of the country at that time. And people really loved Chacha Nehru.
1: Right? Hmm? Yeah.
2: I mean, the very fact, you know, he was called Chacha Nehru. It's all Chacha. And I remember him coming to uh, inaugurate the first Baal Bhavan in the country, uh, which was right within walking distance of our house, and all of us crowded into the lawns of Baal Bhavan, waiting for Chacha Nehru to arrive. Uh, So, it created a great deal of excitement at that time. That excitement lasted throughout the 50s, I would say. And it's only when the Indochina War took place in sixty-two that um, things began to turn over.
1: So, the the energy and the hope and the the sense of building a nation all together and also service to the nation, right? So one of the things that struck me was how these seeds of service, I mean, you, you studied at IIT Bombay, one of the best engineering schools of India. And um, these days when we hear of the IITs and the IAMs and it's fine and understandable, but you also hear very often just about the big pay packages that the alumni get, the graduating class gets. But I remember you saying in your class, there was very much a sense of, you know, we should be job creators, you and your friends thought, not actually going out and seeking jobs. How did that come about?
2: Well, that um, ties in with the uh, era, with the decade of gloom and doom that came in the 1960s. So the war against China came as a big shock to the whole country. And the fact that we were so unprepared and were totally vanquished in the field was even more uh, depressing for the nation. The good thing was that the nation rallied behind the armed forces. Uh, But I guess uh, Nehru himself received a big shock. And uh, shortly after that, he suffered a stroke and then passed away. Now, at that time, there used to be this big discussion in the country. What after Nehru? Not who after Nehru, what after Nehru? Because many commentators, uh, particularly outside the country, felt that it was Nehru who was holding the country together. And once he was gone, then there would be chaos. Uh, Fortunately, that didn't happen. That little short five feet tall um, Prime Minister Shastri showed that uh, he was no less a leader and uh, but then soon after he became the prime minister i would imagine in less than a year's time uh, there was the indo pakistan war and that's where shastri came into his own when he um, you know gave the slogan Jai, Jawan, Jai Kisan, and he exhorted the country that look, we are passing through a very difficult time. It was not a short war, by the way. You know, it was mm. not ten days, fifteen days. Mm. It was I think, something like four months long, and then the UN imposed the ceasefire. So he, uh, he said, we are going through a very difficult time, and we should, wherever possible, who families that are well off should at least try to miss one meal a week. So that other people can have food to eat, and that idea caught on, especially amongst us. By then, I was uh, at the end of my first year at IIT, and so many of the students responded very positively. And when he said, um, "Jahan bhi ho, jo bhi ho, agar aap kuch khane ka saman to So I remember at home on the third floor of the building, you know, getting these little plastic boxes and stuffing them with dirt and trying to plant tomatoes. Okay. At the institute, we uprooted the hostel ground and. uh, At IIT. At IIT, we uprooted (laughs) the hostel ground and we decided to plant vegetables. Now, we were all city.
1: Right, boys, We kids. had
2: no idea of what farming or Growing agriculture is. Yeah. So of all the things, as we are um, plucking out uh, the grass of the lawn, and we find all these earthworms. So we started throwing the earthworms <laughs> out.
0: Uh, mm.
2: So, but uh, at the national level, the mood really turned somber. 65, 66, 67 period of tremendous <laughs> droughts in succession and we were said to be living ship to mouth. PL 480 grain uh, Being
1: imported ships in. coming, Yeah,
2: um, it was a gift from the US yeah. US, and um, unloaded, then the grain would show up at the ration shops and people would get grain to eat. Hmm. At that time, two American brothers, George and Bill Paddock, they came out with a book called Triage. Triage is the theory that, you know, if a ship is sinking, you first save the able-bodied so they can help the others. So, these two gentlemen suggested not to give food aid to India. Their argument was that India is a basket case, it's got too many people, and that one of their sentences was something to this effect that by the mid 70s, people will drop dead, will be dropping dead on the streets of Indian cities oh, my because of hunger, hunger. and malnutrition.
0: Yeah. Oh
2: Now this came as a shock to us. I mean, here Pandit Nehru had been telling us all in the fifties that we have to do we are going in for planned economic development. By the end of the second or the third five-year plan, we'll be a strong and healthy nation. Logom Ke Hogi or Keto Mehariali Hogi. And the country was sliding into Poverty, abysmal poverty. So some of us got together and we said, you know, this is who's going to get India out of this mess. It's up to us. We should come forward and uh, do something for the country. And that's when we said that uh, instead of looking for jobs ourselves, there were no jobs available. Unemployment was rampant, and that's why you had the. We are thinking in this way, on the West, and on the East, in Bengal, it's the Naxal movement is uh, gearing up. So that was the mood of the country which made us think about our role in nation building.
1: You are part of a whole generation, right, of these nation builders. Dunu Roy calls you his Langotiayar or chaddi Buddy. as some people would say. There's a whole generation of y'all. There's, you know, Dunu, there's Anila Garwal, Aruna Roy, Ila Bhat. I mean, all of these are people who've established national organizations. Tell us a little bit about this kind of intergeneration camaraderie and the spirit of building an independent India.
2: So, in the 50s, and I would say up to the um, mid-sixties, the non-governmental organizations were either some variation of charity, so focusing more um, on uh, doling uh, aid or on, at best, building schools and colleges. There were political parties, there were trade unions. But you did not have any developmental organizations as such. Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation came into the picture, but they they were operating at the government level also. It's after the droughts in the 60s that people of my generation, the Midnight's children, started to get active. Bunker went... Uh, to Bihar to work with AFRO. And then when the work was done in Bihar, uh, would be around the late 60s, then he borrowed three rigs from AFRO and said, I can use them to uh, look for water in Rajasthan, which is a very dry state and also extremely poor. So Bunker took off from there.
1: Um, And can you just tell us what he set up, Bunker Roy?
2: Yes. He set up the Social Work and Research Center in uh, Thilonia, uh, Ajmer District. Uh, So Bunker went off over there. We started a group at IIT around 1967 um, and offered our services to other organizations that could use some engineering um, talent or skills. Uh, Didn't get very far. Hmm. And uh, shortly after that, I encountered a gentleman named uh, P.K. Mehta, Professor P.K. Mehta, who was visiting India from California. Uh, He told me about an organization called FRIA, Front for Rapid Economic Advancement of India. And he said that uh, this had been set up also to uh, amongst people who are extremely conscious about being Indians outside, doing well, and how can we contribute to India's development. So they had set up FRIA and then realized around 1967 that... uh, we are sitting in the us how can you have rapid economic advancement in india by sitting in the us so a number of them came here came to india but very soon they took up jobs and then their first priority was their jobs so where is the time to do rapid economic advancement so when professor mehta met me in the summer of 1967 i told him about this little group that we had in uh, at iit bombay And I said, you know, I'll talk to my friends, and if they are agreeable, why don't we become the first chapter of Friya in India? And that's how Friya started uh, in India. And 68, shortly after I graduated, like everybody else from my class, I too joined the hordes going abroad. But uh, before going abroad, I uh, went to Dunu, who was one year my senior, and I said to him, Dunu, uh, we, you know, we've set up this thing um, called Fria." And um, how about if you take it over? Why, why don't you run Friya? Dunu was really one of the most uh, well-rounded students ever to graduate from uh, IIT, Bombay. Dunu Roy. Dunu Roy. And he was very good at studies. He was a good sportsman. He was very good at fine arts. He was a good writer, and he was absolutely everybody admired him. And you shouldn't be surprised that the uh, the gold medal for the silver jubilee best student produced by IIT went to Dunuroy. Roy, and the golden jubilee for best student produced by IIT went to Dunuroy. So I went to Dunuroy and I said can you take over Freya? He was doing his master's then and he said, get lost. Uh, let me finish my master's. You guys man- manage Freya for a while and uh, that's your problem. I'll join after I'm done with my master's. And really it's amazing. He came over. After as soon as he finished his master's, he took over the leadership of uh, Freya. I tease him now saying that if you had accepted that job at uh, Hindustan Unilever, you would have been the chairman of Hindustan <laughs> Unilever.
1: Can you give us an example of a project that Friya did in the late 60s?
0: Well, I
2: don't know how much time you have, but there is this you start with a failure. Hmm? So in 67. When we were uh, still discussing how to be useful, a gentleman named Thomas Abraham came from um, to meet us, and he represented an organization called India Village Advance. He was working outside of Pune, and uh, he said, Look, I'm working in a very poor village. I have a campus. Why don't you guys come to Pune in uh, the summer and you Work with our team over there. So we said, Fine. And come summertime, we decided that uh, eight or ten of us were willing to go to Pune. We show up at his campus, and the gate is locked. Finally, we found somebody who said, Dr. to Bahar gaye So we said, We'll uh, wait till he comes back. He said, so said, we said told him our story and he gave us some place to stay. Uh, we waited. Dr. Abraham didn't show up, so we thought, now what do we do? We can't just go back to Bombay and tell our friends. So we talked to the villagers and the only thing that we had uh, tried to equip ourselves with uh, on what will we do when we get there was sanitation. So we had a simple idea of uh, what used to be Gandhiji's favorite idea of a latrine. So we told the villagers that, you know, we can um, put up latrines over here, very simple latrines. Um, uh, would you be interested? So immediately the Sarpanch's hand goes up. So we were happy. Immediately the Sarpanch's hand goes up. we were thrilled. So we said, okay, take us to the location where you want the latrines. And they took us to the end of the village. Okay. So we put up these very simple latrines with a textile uh, partition. And uh, after they were ready, we went back to IIT. We told our friends of what great work we had done and they said, Yeah, but what's happening with those latrines? How do you know they're being used? So we sent some of our friends back to the village. They came back and they said, Nobody's using those latrines. There are goats sitting around and shitting all over the place. So that was our first lesson on how not to do development. But Dunu, when he took over... He first acquainted himself with what was going on in the country. So he went and he met some organizations, a lot of Gandhian organizations, and he decided that there were people like us at IIT from urban areas who had no idea of what is poverty, why people are poor, and how on earth will you get rid of poverty. Right? So, uh, Dunu thought that a good experiment would be to begin with a student volunteer program. So he started this program where every year he would spend several months visiting colleges, professional colleges, medical colleges, engineering colleges, probably a few law schools, and talking to the students there, telling them about what they could uh learn by working for a while with poor communities and uh, that was a great exposure for a lot of students i remember by 73 there was this uh, or 74 Um, JP's movement had started in Bihar, and there was the Everyman's Weekly, and JP used to write um, uh, an article for every issue. And he talks about these three organizations in the country that were really setting a good example for the youth of the country, and it was a call to action. So FRIA was one of them. And by then, Dunu had been taking about over 300 people to, the, to work in the uh, summer. And after their summer exposure, then there would be a um, workshop where students would narrate their experiences, what they learned and, and what they did. And basically, he would organize work for them, which if they did it, And did it well, it was a great benefit for the community. If they messed it up, nobody suffered. So there were things like doing all kinds of surveys uh, for the community. Uh, And um, it created a whole generation of activists. Hmm? So uh, you are from Hyderabad, right? Yes. You must have heard of a person named Sagardhara, Mm -hmm. right? Sagardhara is from Sriya. Um, Javed Anand, Communalism Combat, he's from uh, Freya. So there were a whole generation of people who came out of uh, Freya and uh, did some wonderful work.
1: So you've brought us to the 70s and JP, can you talk us through your experience of the 70s? I mean, the emergency has kind of faded from current day Indian memory. So could you describe to us, you were in the U.S., you were studying, the shock, the effects it had on you and your generation, and then the 1984 riots, and what you did, what your role was in those crises?
2: Professor Mehta had come to India for a sabbatical in 73-74. When he returned back to the U.S., Sometime in September of seventy-four. Shortly after that, we uh, held a workshop of people who were interested in India's development. So there were something like sixty or seventy uh, people from all over USA who showed up at that meeting. Professor Matha talked about the turmoil that had taken place in Gujarat. The student movement against Chiman bhai Mehta and his corruption, Navnirman movement. Uh, and he said that it had now spread to Bihar also, and the country was in a big turmoil at that time.
0: The Navnirman Andolan, or the Reconstruction or Reinvention movement, was a socio-political movement in 1974, in Gujarat, led by students and middle-class people against economic crisis and corruption in public life.
2: There was a lot of corruption, people were unhappy, people were not still not getting jobs, etc. And there had been big droughts in 71-72 in Maharashtra and Gujarat, and there was a drought in Bihar. So he, he said that he was quite apprehensive uh, about whether India would be able to overcome these difficulties. In January, we then decided to set up uh, the India Development Society, which would bring together most of these disparate groups in the US. Uh, So that initiative began, and one day I received a call from a friend in uh, the Midwest, who said, "Hey, there's this uh, young new student at the University of Chicago, a fellow named Anand Kumar. He was a part of the JP movement, and uh, why don't uh, you try and get in touch with him?" So we arranged for uh, I arranged for Anand to come and visit me in uh, New Jersey, and I also arranged with a professor at Columbia University, Dr. B N Varma, who was from Bihar. And we had a meeting um, at uh, Dr. Verma's house, and Anand talked about the Bihar movement, um, uh, the JP movement, and uh, the role of students, etc. And we said that, look, the people in the US are simply not aware of all this. Can we send you on a speaking tour in summer? So, he said, sure, why not? So the india development uh, group has uh, arranged a speaking tour at all the different locations where our friends were uh, which started in early uh, june now sometime in june a friend of mine shri kumar podar shows up in uh, at my home in new jersey and he says um, uh, can we have a meeting with uh, the students at your university? And I said, sure, why not? So we had a meeting. And at that meeting, he said to the students, he said, you know, if if all the laws are subverted in India and um, the government declares a state of emergency and you have no human rights left, what will you do? This immediate howls of protest can't happen in India. Don't talk nonsense. So nobody believed that. And a few days later, 25th uh, June, late night, the emergency is declared. And Anand Kumar lands up in. that was his date for uh, a talk at Columbia University. That talk was going to be on 26th. News had already appeared because India is ahead uh, time-wise. So, I get a call from Columbia University early in the morning saying, maybe we should cancel Anand Kumar's talk today. I said, look, the guy has come all the way from Chicago. And uh, he's come just for this function. So, we can't cancel it. What's your problem? So they said, you know, they're getting feelers from the embassy, from the consulate, that they cancel your program. I said, no, don't do that. Um, What you tell them is that we will have Anand Kumar talk as planned and a representative of the government can also put the government point of view. So let the people hear both points of view. So it was agreed. And that was quite a performance. So 26th, Anand, myself, talked through the night. We talked to our friends in other locations. 30th June, we showed up in Washington to protest outside the Indian embassy. At that time, we also decided, about 25, 30 people, that's all. And um, we decided to set up an organization called Indians for Democracy. So I went back, and all of us went back to our locations. I went back to uh, New Jersey. I lived in New Jersey, across the River Hudson from Manhattan. So I started contacting people in that New Jersey, New York area. And very soon we had a chapter of Indians for Democracy. They were very clear that we want uh, nonviolent Protest, And if you are non-violent and you are fighting for uh, civil liberties, uh, we are with you. So, we began and the next uh, date was, uh, of course, 15th August, and we organized, tried to organize a bigger protest. And about 60, 70 people showed up. So, that day we decided that um, we should have some kind of a newsletter to inform Indians of what was going on in the country. Uh, I took over the editorship of this newsletter and I called it Indian Opinion, uh, following uh, Gandhiji's newspaper in South Africa. Uh, So that was uh, a major role that I performed while I was there. And of course, trying to expand the uh, Indians for Democracy, getting more people involved, Then in uh, August or so, July-August of 76, there was this talk of new legislation to curb the fundamental rights, hmm? 42nd Amendment to the Indian Constitution. And uh, Professor Mehta then says, Look, If they pass the 42nd Amendment, I don't want to be an Indian citizen. I will do a Padhyatra from Boston to New York, and at the UN, I will burn my passport." I'm sitting there. He's supposed to be my mentor. What is he going to do? Walk all by himself? So I said, if you're going to walk, I will walk with you. Then Anand Kumar said, I'll walk with you. And pretty soon there were a few of us. Uh, so I organized that walk. And as you probably know, that at that time the um, nonviolent movement in America was also very strong. They had coalesced with the civil rights movement, and um, the disarmament people had come together. So they were doing this huge, massive walk from San Francisco to Washington, uh, the walk for disarmament and social justice. And they had feeder routes joining them north-south directions. One of them was coming from um, Boston to Washington. The people who were organizing that walk was a group called War Resisters League which was an international organization. JP had been one of the founders in the 40s. And I had gotten to know them because of the anti-emergency effort. So I went to them and I said, "Uh, how do you organize a walk? Uh, So they helped me organize a walk from, they said, don't do this Boston to Washington. It's too long for you guys. You don't have enough people and instead do a shorter walk. So we came up with Liberty Bell in um, Philadelphia to the United Nations in New York, about 100 miles. Uh, We did that uh, walk. And as you probably know, that's where I met, uh, I ran into Joe, or Joe ran into me uh, on the highway uh, because she was walking from north to south. And uh, so...
1: That's the lovely personal romantic yes. bit. <laughs>
2: Which still survives. Yeah. <laughs> right?
1: So, shall we move from those days a little bit, a decade maybe ahead to the 1980s? And you'd move back to India, Joe and you were married, and the riots in Delhi and the crisis after that.
2: Yeah. Joe and I came here in. Uh... In, at the end of February 1981. And then when our first child was to be born, um, Joe wanted to go back home and there's a nice Punjabi custom that the first child is delivered at the Maike. So I said, okay, uh, we'll go to the US. So she went there and she also studied uh, to be a midwife while she was there. And I uh, joined her at some point. We came back um, in 1984, October. And I had gone back to work at uh, CSC because CSC was engaged in bringing out the second Citizens Report.
1: And CSC was?
2: Center for Science Environment established by... Uh, Anil Agarwal, my dear friend. And while I would just gone to Delhi and I told Joe and I said, you stay on in Bombay with my parents and I'll go and look for a flat um, and then we will, uh, I'll take you to Delhi. But 31st October, Mrs. Gandhi was shot and killed. And then the riots broke out. And we were shocked. I remember I was staying at the home of an uncle, uh, Kant, in uh, the Knaut Place area. Uh, The next morning as I was uh, going to... I was staying with Anil Agarwal in press enclaves, southern uh, Delhi, south Delhi. So as I went to... Presently, on the way, I saw that there were some buses were burnt, and uh, there was some smoke coming from some places. So I was very surprised. What is what happened? When I reached there, I, a friend of mine, Poonam Mutreja, called me and said, uh, "Listen, do you know about the riots?" And I said, "No. What riots?" She said, we are meeting at the home of Sumanto. Sumanto Banerjee was another journalist. Um, and he, she said, why don't you also come? He lived in Enclave. I said, sure, I'll come. So that morning, about 10 or 12 of us gathered at Sumanto's home. And uh, different parts of Delhi, there are reports of uh, riots and Sikh uh, communities being attacked and people being killed. So we should do something. But do what? Uh, so we first decided let's go around the uh, town and see what was happening. And somebody said, "Par wo laga hua hai. So very quickly we made a sign press, put it in front of Poonam's jeep, and we started um, traveling around. We went and. Uh, First caught hold of Swami Agnivesh. Swami Agnivesh was an Arya Samaj Swami who was known for his left of center views and had started this thing called Bandhua Mukti, uh, Bandhua Mazdoor Mukti Morcha, uh, to get uh, people out of um, to get out of bondage. And I had gotten to know him because I had uh, written some pieces on the. Uh, labor camps for the building the stadia for the Asian Games in 1982. So we picked him up and we decided we would just go around the country with uh, the, the town and he would, um, having him with us, known face, police was less likely to bother us. We ran into some friends of uh, Rajiv Gandhi and we said, do you know what's happening in the country? And so um, that was the first time we heard that line. You um, know, tree falls in the forest. When a giant tree falls in a forest, everybody hears. So we were quite disappointed with that response. By the time we came to Lajpatnagar, we saw that there was this is a market, Lajpatnagar market in Delhi. And we saw that there were some young kids who are setting some shops on fire. So, immediately Swami Agnivesh got out of the jeep, and as soon as he got out of the jeep, "Idharao, idharao!" All the kids got scared and ran away. So he got up on a makeshift podium and delivered a speech. You're not burning anybody's shop, you're burning the nation. Please be careful what you are doing, these things will have long term repercussions. The Sikhs are no less than us, they are our brothers. And soon, pretty soon a crowd collects. And then we go to, somebody invites us home, So we went, we talked to, there are about 30-40 people who collect in this in that uh, drawing room. and. We have a discussion. I say, Swamiji, hai, said, But Swami Ji, You have listened to it. Today, There have been cars in our hands and filled Swami Yagnivish said, Have seen it? No. Have you seen it? Nobody in the room had seen it. So, it was a rumor. So, he said, Why do you believe rumors? Hmm? So, that was, by then we had made phone calls to other people and uh, We had uh, organized a small meeting of activists in Lajpat Bhavan. So 4.30 in the evening we are sitting there, we have this meeting. And it's decided that we would set up some kind of a relief effort uh, to intervene. As the meeting is progressing, somebody comes, they are burning a Gurdwara over there. So meeting cancels, we take out a march to that Gurdwara. By that time, the Gurdwara is already on fire, is burning, and people are rushing around with uh, uh, buckets of water to throw the fire out. Uh, No response has come in from the fire department. And then we hear that there's another kind of fire that's uh, breaking out in another part of Lashpatnagar market. So we take out this march through the uh, shouting slogans of Hindu Sikh, Bhai Bhai and all that. Um, and uh, we went back to Lajpat Bhavan, decided that at night we'd go and meet the opposition leaders. And next day we will take out a big march uh, through Nagar because that was a hot spot. And I live nearby in Nagar. I went to see Chandrasekhar whom I had known earlier. And he said, I'm going now. Pradhan Mantri has called a meeting. i hai sitting at the National Executive Janta Party the National Executive. You come and tell me what is the situation in the city. And if it's the situation in such a we will take the National Executive ko your march. So the next day, things were as bad. And we had done early morning rec By 5 o'clock in the morning, we'd gone around various parts of the city, and so 9 o'clock I went to the party office and I said, there's this, um, things are as bad. In the meantime, they had received news that Madhu Dandavate, who was supposed to come for the meeting, his train has been stalled somewhere, and people are beating on the windows of the train. Uh, to see if there are any sick uh, passengers in there. We did the march and all the Janata party came. And there was one very, very uh, unusual moment. So we are walking through a narrow lane and suddenly from the other side, a group of young men come shouting slogans with talwar's in their hands, and there are we are walking about three or four in a, a line, and the guy next to me says, "Kya do? I said, "Kuch nahi, And I held both the hands very tight. <laughs> she would anyone try to run away? I mean, I had not the foggiest idea of what we were going to do, but I figured. Chandrasekhar is somewhere at the back. He's tall. He should be seen. They might stop. And then my friend Poonam who's in the next row behind me, she said, Ravi, you come back. And she and her friends, they moved to the front. So they moved to the front. I thought that was a brilliant idea because she is a woman. They're not going to harm a woman. And we are about this distance where you and I are sitting now. About what is it, about a meter and a half, right? And suddenly, there's a flag march, a contingent of army people coming through with a white flag. And the uh, youth saw them and then they immediately ran away. But that was a very decisive moment for me that, uh, you know, when this guy said, Kya karna hai, sir? Kuch Khade ho bas. Um, so at the end of the walk, we set up the Kekta Manj. The next day, we moved into the um, Lajpat Bhavan grounds and we organized a relief effort which took care of about 50,000 people in Delhi who had been rendered homeless um, for... Over a month or so, After, during that period, we also um, mobilized a lot of support for their rehabilitation. The houses had been burned, shops had been broken into, people had lost their livelihoods. So to restore all that, we got tremendous support from the people of uh, Delhi. Uh, even the big business houses, HP uh, Nanda of Escorts, came forward. The Charat Ram, Bharat Ram families came forward to help and lots of organizations came forward. It was a tremendous effort. We had uh, opened uh, maybe about 15 or 20 relief camps throughout the city. Every evening we would get a report from each one of the camps. Somebody would come at about 4 o'clock and would prepare, uh, would give us an oral report. Anil Agarwal uh, I convinced him to step out of CSE and I said you put out a press release, we'll hold a press conference every day. Six o'clock in the evening there would be a press conference and this press release would be issued. It was quite an effort at uh, letting people know what was happening and the next day nine o'clock would be a early morning meeting of the volunteers. He asked Uh, after the press conference in the evening we would get a list of requirements from the uh, teams Alok Mukhopadhyay who was then with Oxfam I was staying at his house during those days and he and I would sit awake till midnight figuring out how we are going to mobilize all this stuff by tomorrow Um, and in the morning the press would come Can we go and visit some of your camps? So as our volunteers would be leaving with all their packages, um, they would go, they would then report eyewitness news and so on. So it led to a tremendous amount of uh, support from the people of Delhi. Um, And Kekta Manj I think, survived for about a year or so.
1: When you talk about that decisive moment of uh, marching in this tiny lane and being faced by these young, angry men with swords, it's really kind of uh, putting into action all that one might believe in in nonviolence. right? You might think about it and believe in it and talk about it, but it's really at that moment when you're tested. So can we shift a little and talk about growing up in Bombay? it was still Bombay in those days, your parents moved from Pakistan. What was growing up like, and what are some of the habits that you can see that have really stood you in, in good stead over the years, and that you still carry with you now, decades later?
2: You know, we lived uh, on what was then called Queen's Road, now Karve Marg, right opposite the Cherni Road, Uh, station, local trains and the first train would come at 4.40 in the morning and when it came, I would wake up. I was an early sleeper, would be asleep by before 9 o'clock at night, so I'd wake up at 4.40 and I couldn't do anything, right? Small house, there are lots of people sleeping around, you can't do much. So I got into the habit of doing my homework in the morning so as not to disturb anybody. And that habit stayed. Hmm? Even now, I get up very early in the morning and before the newspapers come uh, to distract me, I have done some work. The second uh, thing was that there was a certain amount of discipline got that got instilled instilled in us. We were supposed to complete our homework before going to school the next uh, day. That was um, sin qua non. At home, my mother had the system that every week, we were four kids, and we had lots of cousins who would be staying with us for different periods of time. So every week, she would assign a duty uh, to each one of us. For example, one week I might be asked to iron all the clothes, right? right. So that was my job. Another week, uh, my job might be to uh, pick up pick up all the beds and stash them at one place, or another week lay out the beds at night, etc. Um, and i recall this so vividly one day i was cleaning the carpet there is a small um, wooden handle brush and that was used to brush the carpet then i was doing that and my father just casually says to my mother he said um, ye... i'll say it in hindi now though he said it in punjabi ye iski de I overheard that remark. And I said to myself, this is something that they appreciate. And just that chance remark has stayed with me all my life. That if I took on a job, I made sure that I finished it. And the hardest part was finishing my PhD. I, by then, my attention had wandered everywhere possible. You know, the um, the emergency had come along. Then I wanted to set up this program on appropriate technologies at the university. I To me, the uh, PhD was the last concern. But then a time came when the school authorities issued a warning to me that you are... Uh, reaching the end of the period for a PhD. And uh, I then decided to buckle down and do my PhD. And I did finish it. it was a good good thesis. Everybody appreciated it. Um, so even, you know, like, we've faced a lot of difficulties after that. But that's the thing that has stuck with me. And I've... Uh, On that basis, I have learned that what remarks parents make in the presence of children are extremely important. Um, And it's good to encourage children from time to time when they are doing some good work. Another ethic in our family was you are expected to do well. So if you did well, you didn't get a pat on your back. That was what was expected of you. You had to do something more. So that was a bad habit that I picked up, which was that if people did what they were expected to do, I didn't pat them on their back. I didn't encourage them. I thought, karna tha. Growing up at home, these were some of the values I got. Then, of course, there was that role model, my mother's uncle, and you have to live a simple life, you have to share. What you have. So you live within your means, but if there are other people who need something, then you have to share whatever you have got. So these were those values. And growing up in Bombay in the 50s was a delight. I can't imagine a better place to grow up in. It was a lovely city, not overcrowded. I don't know how much, uh, how old you people are, but it, when I went to Bangalore in the early 80s, it reminded me of Bombay in the 50s. a okay, beautiful. It was a green place, nice footpaths for us to walk on, um, not too much traffic. And in our school, we saw no discrimination of any kind. There were Muslim students, there were Christian students, there were. Parsis, there were Jains, and there was, of course, the lots of Hindus and so on. And while we ribbed each other no end, you know, uh, we would have uh, Punjabi jokes, we would have Sikh jokes, we would have Marwadi jokes, Sindhi jokes, making fun of everybody. Nobody took offence because you could always make fun of the next guy. Uh, so there was none of that, and. Xavier's high School was a very interesting place where you had children of millionaires coming and children coming from very poor families also. So because we all had to wear the same uniform, you had the only way you could distinguish ki who's rich, who's poor was Or somebody wears you know well- ironed clothes every every day. Or somebody uh, is coming in a private car, a car comes to drop him. Otherwise, once inside the school, there was very little to distinguish each other. So I think that was a great upbringing. And as a result of which, I can, even now, even though I've been away from Bombay for a long time, I'm very comfortable in Gujarati, and after couple of days of being in Bombay or Maharashtra, I am quite comfortable in Marathi also.
1: The
0: multilingual Indian. Yes. (laughs) In this next section, Ravi Chopra and Sushitra speak about the main mentors and influences in Dr. Chopra's life.
1: Building on childhood onwards, one important role, I think, for a lot of people is the role of mentors. Could you talk to us about mentor figures in your life, other friends who you might have learned from? You've mentioned Dr. Professor Mehta, you've mentioned your dear friend Anand Kumar. Just a little bit about what you learned from them and others.
2: First, I'd like to just mention that before the mentors, there were some very important people who were responsible for critical turning points in my life. I've talked about uh, Achintra, my mother's uncle. This most important uh, person, again, I can pinpoint the moment, is um, back in 61, early 61, a friend of mine comes rushing home and evening and he says, ravi chalo chalo wo chapati par rajmohan gandhi aaj ek bhashan de raha hai and i got the chance to sit on the dais ek seat ban jayegi tum bhi chalo sath mein so i went with him and rajmohan at chapati beach he gave a very stirring speech um, he was a young man himself must have not been more than in his uh, late 20s or something gave a stirring speech and saying you know We have to build this nation. Nobody is going to come from outside to build it. And it's the young people who have to build this nation. I was really turned on. So I went home and I told my parents, I said, I don't want to study. I'm going to get into nation building.
1: (laughs) Rajmohan Gandhi has said so.
2: (laughs) Rajmohan Gandhi has said. uh, Got a slap. In response, at this age, you are supposed to study. You finish your studies, then you can do what you like. Of course, they never kept to that promise either. Um, so that was the turning point. That set the rest of my life for me. Okay. Uh, the third one was, um, of course, I've talked about Lal Bahadur Shastri and his call to the nation, and um, then uh, Professor Mehta coming. And Professor Mehta, I could say, was probably the first mentor uh, we had before meeting him uh, the group of students at IIT who were interested in doing something useful had gone to different organizations only to be told abhi to tum college mein na, abhi padhai karo ja he was the first one to encourage us that we were on the right track and ever since then he gave us all the encouragement uh, whether it was I or later Dunu uh, to Developed Freya, And um, right until his very end, uh, we would meet from time to time, and uh, sometime in the late 90s, he said, look, I want to do something for the Himalayas. He was from originally from Himachal. So, he has been a constant mentor. Hmm? After I set up uh, PSI, you know, I studied solid state physics and um, you know, how atoms or ions diffuse in a material. I knew nothing about civil engineering or building dams and doing all this kind of stuff. So when we set up PSI and I was in charge of two units water and forest Dunu was in charge of two units which had to do with labor and the young People who joined PSI would often come to me for guidance and I would say, I don't know anything about this. I have not studied engineering. I have done more of science than engineering. Um, I'm sorry, but you'll have to go somewhere else. Um, Then G.D. Agarwal, Professor G.D. Agarwal, who was also one of the co-founders of FRIA. G.D. Agarwal was our chairman. And uh, he initiated a lot of work uh, at PSI in terms of setting up an environmental quality monitoring lab. Uh, Dr. Chavla Kamarjeet, uh, not only a friend but also a mentor. Much of the engineering I know today, whether it has to do with earthquake proof housing or it has to do with uh, dams and rivers, came uh, from Dr. Chavla and of course rivers later on i learned a lot more from gd and uh, dunu dunu played a great role you know not only did he know his uh, science and engineering very well but he also knew the social uh, structures within which we had to operate so i would say that those were very critical uh, mentors and then much later you know i did I had no management background, and this business about um, organization processes. How do you organize society, and how do you do work in a participatory manner? I could do that in the field, but within the organization, I was a dud, and that m- learning came from my association with pradhan and i that's why i admire um, deep, deep and vijay
1: deep joshi and vijay mahajan
2: yeah because it was a role model for me to look up to and of course i must mention jo jo every as often as she could she would say look work is your life, you want work to be the center of your life. It's not everybody else's center. You have to be more gentle. You have to be kinder to your colleagues.
1: This is Ravi's uh, wife, Gawan Chopra.
2: <laughs> oh, I forgot Chandi Prashad Bhatt. Yes. Chandi Prashad yeah. Bhatt had been uh, one of the leaders of the Chipko movement. And we became very close friends. Um First at CSC, and at CSC it was Anil who taught me how to write for the public. When I first wrote a few pieces at CSC for the Citizens' Report, he said to me, "He says your information is excellent, but no one will read it. I said, Kyo? He says, "You you are writing like a scientist. You are." building the background and then you are telling the story. He says, no, people lose interest. You first, in journalism, you begin with the main thing that you want your readers to read and understand before anything else put it in the first paragraph. Okay, so he was a mentor of sorts. But Bhajit taught me one basic lesson. He says, we must, as activists, we must respond to the felt needs of the people. This phrase was Bhachi's favorite, felt needs of the people. And that's how we did a lot of our work at PSI. We didn't decide. We did not have an agenda. We, people would come to us with a problem and we would try and respond to it.
1: So that leads us very nicely into People Science of India and PSI and the work. So what was the thinking when you set it up Describe to us the work that PSI does and did, starting from dams, rivers, all of that.
2: By the uh, time I I had decided to return from the US, uh, I started discussing with one of my IIT roommates uh, that what should we be doing. And I said, it's fairly straightforward. We have been trained in science and technology and that's what we have to use for the service of the people. So it was that simple an idea. How would you use science and technology in the service of people and solve their problems? This is one of the gifts of engineering. Engineers are trained to solve problems. So we said, okay, we'll make an institution where anybody can walk in and talk to us about the problems. So PSI uh, began with uh, looking at issues of water, and the biggest use of water is irrigation. The first project I said to my colleagues, I said, look, uh, before we get into advising people on what to do for irrigation, let us first understand the subject ourselves. So for one year, we did nothing but do a study of history of irrigation in India, going back to about five or 7,000 years ago till the present. Hmm?
1: Across the country? Across oh.
2: the country. Wow. What was, uh, how irrigation developed in different parts or did not develop. And that really made us understand one thing, that the traditional systems of irrigation, many of which still survive, were quite uh, in harmony with the environment around them. They were not destructive of the environment. Whereas if we look at the post-independence era, there is a lot of um, destruction of the environment in order to provide irrigation water. Uh, We began with that. Then the 1988 drought that broke out was 87-88 drought. That led us to study droughts. Hmm? How do people manage to survive when they don't know where the next meal is coming from? Okay. Uh, my colleagues and I went around the country seeing what could be done in response to droughts. All of a sudden in 1991 comes the Uttarkashi earthquake. A bunch of people come to our office, and they say, um, "We need help in building earthquake-safe houses." So I said, "We to work." He said, "You engineer, to ho na? engineer to To aap humko batao. And given our basic idea that you have to respond to people's requests. So I raised the issue with uh, Kamarjit, Dr. Chawla, and I said, uh, Kamarjit, uh, can you help us? I um, said, sure. Now he's a geotechnical engineer about the best in the country. And he taught us all the principles of earthquake-safe construction. Ninety-three, there was the Latour earthquake, and at that time there were no lots of organizations that know what to do during an earthquake. So we were also very lucky to run into uh, Laurie Baker in Latour, and Laurie Baker was happy to see us. He gave us a lot of time, and we were thrilled to be in his company and learning about mud buildings from him. Um, 97 was the Jabalpur earthquake, 99 was the Chamuli earthquake. By the end of the 90s, we had not only understood how to build earthquake safe houses, right? But a lot more. Um, we had developed a timeline of how do you respond to disasters of different scales. Okay? So, if it's a small, localized uh, disaster, there is one timetable. And if it's a state-level disaster, there's another timetable. How does the government operate? We produced a lot of very simple, basic literature. So, disaster mitigation and response became a second field of PSI. And then, um, from just looking at water... One day, Dr. G.D. Agarwal said to me, he said, You um, have tried to create a lab, this is a lab of water pollution. Ki lab hai. Why don't you make it into an environmental quality monitoring lab? And I said, uh, but then isn't the air pollution equipment uh, expensive? And we don't have anybody dealing with air pollution here. He had helped some of his students from IIT Kanpur to set up a company which made air quality monitors in this country. Okay. So he brought in the idea of converting a tiny pollution water quality testing lab into an environmental quality monitoring uh, group so not only did we have the equipment but we had people who knew how to use the equipment to generate results and how those results are to be used for um, campaigning against uh, uh, environmental pollution so for a long time these three remained and then gradually irrigation uh, water involvement gave way to expanded into natural resource management in late 89 there was a workshop in Ranchi on dams. And some dams had been planned in the Nagpur Plateau area, one of which was Ranga Dam. Dunu had gone to that conference and uh, when people came to him and said, uh, you know, there's this dam going to be built in our uh, area and 38 villages are going to be submerged, what can... Where can we go for help? And he said, hey, "There's the Institute People Science Institute in Dehradun. Go ask them." During the drought, some of my friends were working there. Colleagues were working there, and one day I got a call saying, "Ravi, this uh, we have a young DM and a DDC, a, a Deputy a District Commissioner, and they've started this very interesting." program to combat the drought. It's called Pani Panchayat. And, uh, but they don't know how to work that program and they're making a mess of it. So all the contractors have hijacked the program. We need you to come here and talk to them. So I went and Uh, I spent a day with my colleagues and I tried to understand. Next morning, I went and met the DDC. And he said, "Um, you've just arrived here. Why don't you go around the district, go to some of the places where the dams are being built, see what you find, and then let's have a talk at night. Evening, I went and told him, I said I had been to these three locations. And I attended some meetings of your Pani Panchayats in these Villages and the thing is totally run by contractors, not by the villagers. The villagers are all on paper and money is being siphoned off. So he said, What should we do? I said, There's a way of setting up these systems of Pani Panchayat. If you go and you give a speech and you get people excited that they can build a dam uh, and they can form their own committee, submit an application to you. It doesn't mean that they've understood the, what you said. There's a way of organizing the Pani Panchayats. He said, okay, then tell us what to do. We then uh, ran this program, built 144 check dams, in uh, all built by the people. How many people from PSI were there? Five. Okay. Five people working in 144 villages around Palamu district in Bihar. And uh, in two years, these dams were built. But the fascinating part was the systems that we introduced for the Pani Panchayats to really own their dams. And that sense of empowerment that they got, the proof came two years later when we held a Pani Mela across the district. And the women came to us in the Pani Mela and they said, humko bhi ek manch apna chahiye. What happened? What? speak. जब भी हम बोलने की बात करते हैं तो हम बोलते हैं, बैठ जाओ। और आपके पानी पंचायत में देखो कितनी महिलाए हैं So then we worked with them to set up the Mahila uh, Manches in all the villages. they took on afforestation programs, they took on some livelihood programs. So this is how PSI developed uh, over time.
1: It's a very interesting view of, for you as an individual coming from kind of social and political activism and the institution as well, doing this combination of kind of grassroots building and activism, but also institution building. So, can you talk to us a little bit about how you built institutional systems at psi how did you did you even plan for succession how has that worked you know because in the social sector things like succession is a very close to the heart subject i think for most founders
2: okay first i must tell you a, an impression that i have i may be right i may be wrong but the People of my generation, whether it was Dunu or Bunker or um, the Raj and Mabel Arole and so on, lots of them, we came through, we were in a sense self-created leaders. You know, we had an inner drive and we did something that was seen to be unusual and it excited a few other people who then joined us. So in terms of organization, building and planning, there's none of that in the 70s. You don't see that in the 70s. That comes in the 80s. Once big government programs are rolled out and the uh, voluntary sector is invited uh, to take on government projects, and then after that, Other international donors joined the uh, bandwagon. And big sums of money were being handed out to uh, voluntary organizations. So, in the 80s, while um, voluntary organizations who then became NGOs uh, sprouted, mushroomed all over the place, right gradually there was a shift from service to development and development action and projects and writing proposals and writing reports this is not something that we had thought we would be doing right so For people of my generation, I would say by and large, there would be exceptions, of course. The systems way of doing things emerges much later in the uh, late 80s, uh, second half of the 80s. And I think Pradhan is a pioneer in that. As I mentioned earlier, I learned these things, the value of systems and... uh, uh, management much later, in the 90s. PSI had a very nice organic growth almost for the first 10 years. And then we got more and more uh, sucked into taking up projects. People had heard about our work. So they would come to us and say, Aap ye bhi kar dijiye, wo bhi kar And then we became a bit too large very quickly. And that's when I felt the need for Um, systems. At the same time, I got on the board of Pradhan and I learned how they had organized themselves. So thereafter, we began to put systems into place. But it took a long time to to get uh, so-called professional systems into place. There, I think, The role of the donor agencies must also be mentioned that uh, they also began to demand, especially uh, in the 20 years ago when corporates uh, began to give money to NGOs. uh, They brought in their corporate uh, culture, we have to keep these kinds of records, uh, we have to comply with all these regulations. Um, You know, take, for example, the uh, Sexual Harassment POSH, the POSH Act. It took a long time. Even now, I would imagine that half the organizations in the country don't know what POSH is all about, and they don't have an internal committee, etc. Okay? So, it's only, I would say, after uh, the year 2000 that these systems began to come into PSI in the way we work. Earlier it was leadership meant by example. And I learnt the hard way that people, there is no system of osmosis that just because you live and work in a certain way that everybody else will do it. So systems became very useful at that point.
1: And handing over, many people might find it hard to hand over something they founded. Right. Yeah, so you... again,
2: I must give credit to Pradhan because I had seen uh, Vijay and uh, Deep Joshi share uh, the directorship uh, alternate for, a, uh, I think, a couple of times. And then younger, newer people, professionals coming in like Achintya Ghosh, I think, came after that. Somen, after Somin, Manas, and so on, Narendra. So they had developed this system of um, succession. They had how a successor is to be chosen. And they had the stewardship council, etc. So at PSI, uh, I began to think in terms of succession around 2005. There was a friend of mine, Dr. Rajesh Thadani, who was working with uh, Chirag and he had decided to leave Chirag, I thought that I might try and talk to him and see if he would be interested in taking over from me. But before I do that, I need to check with my colleagues here. So I took some of the seniors out and I asked them. They were not happy about it, except for one person who who said it would be a great idea. And I asked him, I said, everybody's saying it's not a great idea. Why do you think it's a great idea? He's very highly educated. At that time, I was uh, the only PhD here. We'd had some other PhDs in between, um, but they were uh, didn't survive too long. And Anil was just finishing his PhD. So... <clears throat> He said, uh, he has run another organization, a much larger organization. So he has the expertise, um, and I think that would be good for the institute. So he was a very good, and he was the oldest employee, uh, who had been here the longest until then. So I started talking to the board and I said, look, I would like to now step down. I'll still continue at PSI, but not as director. You can uh, start looking for another. They all felt that it should be someone from inside, and they chose him. Uh, My colleague Devashi Sen, who is now the director. Um, So he was chosen by the board, and my uh, attitude was, Something that I picked up from uh, I think Narayan Murthy, that you once you have selected your uh, successor, then you give that person a free hand, and his successor had been just like Devashish was to me, somebody who had begun with that organization and uh, grown up with that organization. So it, I thought I told Devashish I said, look, Devashish, I did not have anybody looking over my shoulder telling me what to do. And I really benefited from that freedom. I'll give you the same opportunity. I will not tell you what to do. This is your organization. You run it, whatever way you see fit. If you need my opinion or suggestion, you can always talk to me and I'll be happy to help. So that's the relationship that we've maintained ever since then. I stayed on as a staff person for three years after I gave up the uh, directorship and took whatever responsibility Devashish gave me. uh, Let him run the show. I got out of the board. I told the board, there's no way that I want to exert my influence. And I stayed out. And, you know, Devashish still... Almost 10 years later, he's still the director of PSI.
1: Along with PSI, there's another organization that you've been a strong and kind of silent partner with, which is the Latika Roy Foundation or Latika as it's known now. Can you tell us briefly why it was started and what it does?
2: Latika Roy uh, was uh, Dunu's mother. She was a self-made woman. She got trained by Maria Montessori and started the first Montessori school in Deradun. When she passed away, Dunu's father came and said, I want to do something for Ma. He used to call her Ma. Uh, I said, what would you like to do? She said, I'm thinking that maybe we have this place where um, kids can come and learn Rabindra Sangeet. She was very fond of Rabindra Sangeet. And I said, okay. He said, I have found a plot. I want to show it to you. So it takes me to see a plot. And I said to him, uh, Mr. Roy, how old are you? About 85, 86. I said, so when will you buy this plot? When will this building get built? What should I do? I said, but I'll tell you what we'll do. I was fascinated by Bal Bhavan. Hmm? My formation is also, a lot has to do with Bal Bhavan. Um, my love for reading, for example. Or playing games, sports and so on. So I said, we'll, set, we'll rent a building. And we will um, set up a balbhavan over there. So he said, okay, good. Um, but I have only two lakhs. I said, good, you give two lakhs. We'll put it in an endowment. We'll set up a little society, Latika Roy Memorial Foundation. And uh, we will raise, it won't cost more than I did a quick calculation. I said, won't even cost us 10,000 rupees a month. I'm sure we are capable of raising 10,000 rupees a month. So that money we'll put into endowment. And that's how Latika Roy Foundation started. As a children's activities center where kids can come in the evening. And... um, Just come for fun and games. No studies, no books, uh, textbooks or anything. Just fun and games. Lots of kids came, people loved it and so on. And then Mr. Roy started telling Joe, you should do something for the disabled, no? Ma was in the wheelchair for the last few years of her life. Do something for the disabled. And about the same time we began to realize that our own daughter had very severe disability and a degenerative kind of illness. So we decided, okay, let us open another activity here, which is Karuna hmm? where which is meant to be a place where... In a kind of, it's a school for disabled children, but a different type of school, where each child will learn according to his or her abilities. And so that was the beginning of the Karuna Vihar. And bit by bit, it just grew. Mm. And you probably know that there are about 400-odd kids who come to that Karuna Vihar school every day. And I would say that on a monthly basis... They see about a thousand kids a month.
1: So both you and your wife have worked in the social sector for decades. And uh, I know I've heard from your children that they've told me it made for a great childhood for them, discussions on ethics and justice at the dinner table. What were some of the challenges on a personal or kind of family perspective, financial, emotional, otherwise?
0: Okay. Okay. Challenges. The first challenge was, of
2: course, a big financial and emotional challenge. There was a... See, Jo uh, came from a very close-knit Catholic family. Seven brothers and sisters. She'd never thought about India. She'd never thought about any place outside of the U.S., And then all of a sudden, she meets me. Uh, We don't see each other for two years. We renew our acquaintance and within days decide that we'd like to get married. But I put this condition before her. I said, look, I'm not going to live in the US. I'm going to go back to India and live there. So there's no question of marriage until you uh, are willing to go to India. She said, yes, I'm willing. She hasn't thought about anything. She doesn't know about India, nothing. So, for her, it was a great challenge to move away from her family hmm, and come to India. On top of that was a financial challenge because both of us had been activists. And I had decided long ago that I would not contribute to the defense uh, department of the U.S., And therefore, I would not, I did not want to pay any taxes. So I deliberately never took up a position which would give me some uh, income that was subject to tax, which meant that I never had any money. (laughs) And Joe was a full time activist, uh, a jailbird, in case you don't know. She had been to jail six times.
1: Tell us Um, how much money was in your pockets when you came back? (laughs)
2: 4,200 rupees. We lighted up in India. And I think the customs took about 1,500 rupees to clear that uh, luggage um, that came later by ship. And what were they? They Mainly books. So we had a really tough time in the beginning. And again, Professor Mehta helped out. Uh, I wrote articles for some um, publications and every now and then joe would get something published in an american magazine which paid about 100 dollars and that was like a feast for us okay so that's how we kind of grew up and even when i went to uh, when i moved out of delhi to come to deradun my income dropped by 50% So I used to earn about 8,000 rupees a month over there and suddenly I'm down to 4,000 rupees at PSI. So, again, the ethic that I was given, you learn to live within your means. But, you know, what's interesting is if you're doing good work and your friends and your social circle really helps you out, they don't have to be asked to help you out. You can do that, but very often they come forward themselves. So, uh, many of our friends were very helpful in um, helping us cope with these challenges. Uh, the problem that I imposed on the family was my frequent absence from the family. And um, Most of PSI's uh, projects were outside Deradun. And I always wanted to keep myself well informed about how those projects were running. And so I would go on field tours very often. I was out about 20 days in a month. And so I missed a lot of the growing up of the children. You know, parent-teachers meetings and and prize distribution, nothing. I never went to any of them. Um, And all that burden fell on Joe. Even, now Joe is much more social than I am. Um, So, she'd go to friends' homes and their parties and so on and they'd say, where's Ravi? He's out of town.
0: We now turn to Dr. Chopra's work after his retirement from the People's Science Institute. Let's uh, talk
1: about post-PSI, which is now the past decade of five or six years. What is the kind of work that you're doing, editing, writing, the Supreme Court appointing you committee on the Char Dham case? Can you talk about all of that?
2: I first stepped down as director on December 31st, 2014, but I stayed on at PSI till April 2017. Uh, I was 70 years old and I told Devashish that I would now step back. If he needed me, he could call me, but otherwise I would stay at home. In that period, I began to help out other organizations, whoever asked for some help and if I felt competent uh, to do it. Um, So, a little bit of consulting work. Uh, India Rivers Forum gave it some uh, attention and helped uh, establish its two-yearly programs. Uh, When they held that program on Ganga, then decided to publish a book, then the task of editing, I was one of the three editors of that book, which is about to come out now, Um, so did a little bit of writing when somebody asked for something. and. then came this Char Dham case. I had earlier been the chair of another Supreme Court committee on dams in Uttarakhand. So, given that background, the Justice Nariman agreed to the suggestion that I should be made the chairman of the Char Dham committee. So, uh, from September 2019 till um, I quit in January 22. But you can say that Most of my activity in that stopped in January of 21. So, I did that. Uh, But then in uh, 22, this uh, Hindutva and anti-Muslim, anti-Christian sentiment suddenly blew up in Uttarakhand. And then I uh, got, some friends said, Let's do something. So I got involved in setting up uh, the Uttarakhand in Manch and helping it grow. So this is my most recent bit of organizing. And the first program that we held, we were worried, how uh, Consensus was, I said, then we must get a hall that can only accommodate hundred people, not more. So that it looks like the hall is almost full. So we did a program, more than hundred and fifty people came. We set up something called the Shanti Dal and uh, sixty people signed up for that. And bit by bit, small efforts, small activities... What we have been doing is organizing small group meetings to spread the message of uh, Insaniyat Manch and why we need um, communal harmony uh, in our city. We are focusing on the city at first. Um, What are the values that are uh, enshrined in the Constitution and why they are so important? So the issues of civil liberties, human rights, Secularism, etc, all those uh, so small group meetings that has helped us expand our membership.
1: You talked a little bit about the Committee on dhams and the Committee on dams, but this whole idea of individuals having an effect or interaction with government and interaction with committees, and you know, does it have an impact? People could ask you, what, what difference does it make one you know, report that's written that comes out or assessment that's done?
2: See, I have been involved with the government at various levels since about 1993 or 94. ever since that Palamu work that we did. We were able to have some impact on government thinking, government programs. At the states and at the central level. In many states, we were effective with the state government. But uh, when it comes to these committees, um, the two that you mentioned, the first one on dams, people very often say, Kya hua uska?" Now, the case that was referred to the government, to the best of my knowledge, it is still not over. But in our report, we were asked three questions. Tell us whether dams in Uttarakhand have harmed the environment. Whether the dams in Uttarakhand, don't tell us what happened elsewhere. Tell us whether they aggravated the impact of the 2013 flood. And the Wildlife Institute says 24 dams should be reviewed you review them and give your opinion. So the committee said, yes, we've investigated, we've gone on the field, we've talked to people, we've read publications, and on the basis of our studies, unanimous conclusion that yes, dams have a, these negative effects in Uttarakhand. As far as the 2013 disaster is concerned, we visited places where dams led to disasters, and aggravated the disasters. So based on field studies, we can tell you that the presence of dams, had the dams not been there, those disasters would not have been aggravated. Uh, And as far as your 24 dams are concerned, 23 of them should be dropped. The most important recommendation was a new one, where we said that there is something called a paraglacial zone in the mountains. River valleys from where the glaciers have withdrawn in the past. They are full of moraines, full of lots of boulders and rocks and so on. In the event of heavy rainfall, the rivers bring all this down and they create havoc downstream. So no dams should be built in the paraglacial zone. Now, after this, a lot of activists got involved. G.D. Agarwal was involved in fighting for the Ganga. And... It's the follow-up effort that led to a big change. Seventy dams had been proposed in the Alaknanda-Bhagirathi basins. Out of the 70 dams, 19 had been built before 2013. Out of the remaining 51, the government of India is now fighting in the court for permission to continue with seven dams. Their argument is, More than half of these, uh, more than half the work was done, and uh, 44 have been dropped. So, I think that's a very, very uh, good achievement. Mm -hmm. On the Chardham case, uh, the the majority of the uh, committee was packed with either government officials or uh, scientists who work in government institutions. And they all voted in favor of what the government wanted. There were few of us who were independent and we voted to follow a notification of the ministry saying that wide roads cannot be built in mountain areas because in the last few years, ever since we had decided to build wide roads, the evidence, the experiences, that It leads to a lot of environmental degradation and uh, destabilization of slopes, and it harms public life and security. So in the mountain areas, we should build narrower roads, and we had been in favor of that. Uh, The report, which the government did not want me to submit, I submitted directly to the court, and the court accepted, they appreciated the report. Um, they came in favor of five and a half meters width this instead the of Supreme 10 court. meters. Yeah, Supreme Court. But later the government, uh, through a lot of legal maneuvers, uh, went back to the court and they got a favorable judgment. They did not want to rest until they got a favorable judgment. And uh, once that judgment came, it was very clear that there was no way that the high-powered committee could do anything effective. Um, So that's when I chose to quit.
1: Um, Last two questions as we wrap this wonderful conversation is looking ahead. What are your hopes and fears for the future of India? And having talked about this with you in the past, I know, what makes you so optimistic for India?
2: um you know in the immediate future it things do look very grim hmm? a lot of civil liberties have been curtailed um people have been put behind bars uh, without being brought to trial for long periods of time uh, there have been mob lynchings in the country there's a lot of hatred that is brewing in society, and you know, this kind of uh, social unrest is not going to uh, disappear overnight. The wound is quite deep, and it's going to take a while to heal. But there is a, I'm forgetting the exact statement, but Paulo Freire in his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he says that it is the human condition that it wants to improve it's life. Hmm? So it's in our nature uh, to improve our lives. Okay. And I believe that. Okay. So in the long run, I think we will progress to being a better uh, society, nation with better values. That I'm convinced of. And as regard your second question, what gives me this optimism... See, one is, I keep telling Joe, I used to tell Joe very often, I said, you know, if you look at society over a longish period of time, then there is progress. You take India when I grew up, I mean, there was such poverty, average age of an Indian, 31 years. Today, we are somewhere around 70, 72 years, Mm -hmm. a big change. Right? You see the, the number of uh, school-going uh, children. I still remember when we moved to Dehradun, I used to travel a lot between Dehradun and um, uh, Delhi by bus. And every morning, 7 a.m., all these bright-eyed kids, um, nicely, smartly dressed and so on, going to their schools. And I was, used to think about what my father used to tell me about his school. Um, where kids would normally show up with only one, either they had a uh, knicker on or they had a shirt on. They did not have both the things on. So things had definitely changed. And when I look at my own life, when I was a kid, I grew up in a middle class family. I'd never dreamt that we would have uh, uh, that I would go abroad that I would uh, have a house, that I would have a car and all that. You know, I don't know how to drive. Because I <laughs> thought, cars are not for rich people. So, I if, I, if I learn how to drive, I'm sure I will go out. So, that's for the rich people. I'm not rich, I will not learn how to drive. So, but, you know, we've got a house, we've got a car, we've got everything today. Um, kids are well educated grandchildren are growing up very nicely so the the fear that a lot of people have for some reason many of us whether it was Dunu or it was Bunker it was um, look at uh, Aruna Roy she quits the IES to go become an activist okay and you think there was a there was an organization that was going to pay her any money she didn't have I didn't know where my money was going to come from. It was a leap into the dark. Okay? But there was that belief that if you do good work, people will recognize your work and they'll take care of you. Okay? So that's where my optimism comes from. We are a product of our times. Hmm? Over time and it's 75 years later, after independence. The nation has changed. Hmm? We were exposed to role models who had emerged from a very big social struggle, political struggle. And it had been done in a very unusual way the whole atmosphere of you can bring about change through nonviolent effort. We saw people around us who had lived very simple lives, could have um, acquired all the that the world had to give, but chose to live a simple life. So we had a lot of role models which gave us that faith that you can leap into the dark And society and people will take care of you. Okay. Now, those values are disappearing or maybe in some parts may even have disappeared. So, we should not really think in terms of replicating uh, that. But one thing I will keep saying to people, especially the younger people, that... If you do good work, it is selfless. The key word is selfless service. You, Your work will be recognized and people will take care of you. Okay? That uh, is an article of faith now. There is no doubt about it.
1: Fantastic. On that note, thank you so
0: much. And lovely interview and conversation. Thank you. Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nilekini Philanthropies. For more information, go to Nilekini philanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp underscore foundation. Stay tuned for our next episode and thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.